Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. Winter's in full effect across much of the nation, but here in southern Arizona, it's time to get outside. The temperatures in southern Arizona right now are what much of the nation would consider mild. Those of us who live here also take advantage of the cooler days to get outside before the summer heat sets in. This week, we'll take you outside. We begin our look at the great outdoors and tourism at Saguaro National Park East. That's where AZPM's Emma Gibson took a hike with the park's Andy Fisher. We just left the Broadway Trailhead. What? What are we seeing? Can you describe it for me real quick? Sure, we are wandering south down the Micah View Trail, which is one of our hardened accessible trails, which is a really great spot for anybody of any ability level to come out and go for a walk and a stroll and to get into the Sonoran Desert and the historic cactus forest. Okay, and for, I remember the first time I saw a saguaro. I, it blew me away. It was, I mean, insane is the first word to come to mind. How long have you been a part of Saguaro National Park? And what are some of the things you hear from people when they first see a saguaro or first come to the park? So I've been working here at Saguaro National Park now for about 10 years. Um, and I have to say the biggest reaction I get from folks when they see it for the first time is just to stand. And they look up and they're looking at the top and they're just kind of awestruck. And they're quiet and they're silent. And then next thing you know, they're putting their arms up in the air. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> no. Like... People just stand there quietly looking up and then they want to have this mirrored reaction to what they're looking at by putting their arms in the air and becoming the shape of a saguaro. And it happens all the time, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. So when it comes to saguaros, do you have any fun facts that you like to share with people? Oh, there's so many fun facts about saguaros. Um, probably the one that we get asked the most is how many are there? And I can tell you that every 10 years we do a census where we bring in uh, members of the community and we come out and we try to count as many of the saguaros as we can to kind of get a handle on how many we have, what is their age classifications, what are the conditions that they're living in. And right now we have just over 2 million individual saguaro cacti growing within the boundaries of Saguaro National Park. And is that just Saguaro National Park East or that is, is that both. all of them? Oh, okay. Yep. yep. Saguaro National Park is actually one park. We just happen to have two districts. So all of that math is combined. And why are there two districts? I've always wondered that. <laughs> That's a really great question. So the one that we're in right now was established in 1933. It is the historic cactus forest. And it is the place that we set aside to study saguaros and understand what this plant is. In the mid sixties or so, there was an opportunity to accession part of what was then Tucson County, or uh, yeah, Tucson Mountain Park. It was a Pima County Park. And the federal government said, sure, we'll do that. It's a beautiful stand. It's, a, it's one of the densest stands that we know of. And uh, so it was brought into the park in the 60s because it was so dense and so gorgeous. We've nerded out about saguaros a little mm -hmm. bit, but beyond that, how, what makes this park unique? Why should people come here? One of my favorite things, um, aside from being able to sit quietly and just listen to the Sonoran Desert, is to recognize that that entire mountain that we're looking at to the east of us is and also which part. which is that? That is the Rincon Mountain Range. So what we're seeing right now is the Tanka Verde Ridge. And then behind that is Micah Mountain. And it's covered in what types of vegetation? Yeah, if you get all the way up there to the top of Micah Mountain, you'll see that there's snow right now, you can see it. Up there it is Douglas fir and it is aspen and there are bears and there are um, 
spotted owls. I mean, it is an alpine environment, very similar to what you'd see at the top of Mount Lemmon, except there's no roads and there are no crowds and it is entirely wilderness, which is fabulous. So you could be the only person up there you see for days. But if you look off to the west, you see houses, <laughs> lots and lots of houses in the entire city of Tucson between here and the Tucson mountains, which is our other district. It's really unusual to have a metropolitan area of nearly a million people this close to several hundred acres of designated wilderness where there are no roads and there are no machines and no signs that people were there before you. That juxtaposition is pretty special. And we love it when people come out from Tucson and they take their walks and they use us for their daily fitness routines because they have the ability to get out here and enjoy that wilderness without having to make it a multi-day, you know, adventure off into the National Park Service system. We are right here for the city of Tucson. And people take advantage of that and we love it. You know, I'm not originally from Tucson, but I remember the water and the, the life in the desert. I found that very surprising, the monsoons. So, so when you have Saguaro National Park during the monsoon season or mm -hmm. during the monsoon, I'm just, it comes alive. Could you, could you, how do you describe that to people who have, have never been here and have never heard the, the toads croaking at night at, over in Saguaro East? What is really interesting about saguaro cacti, and we kind of started talking about, you know, you can be in Texas and start seeing icons of saguaro cacti because that is the American West. But the reason that saguaros are here in Southern Arizona and then partially into Mexico, but here in the United States, they're only here. They're not in Texas. They're not in California. They're not in Utah. And the reason is because the Sonoran Desert is what we call a bimodal rainfall. We get, this time of year, we get those winter storms that come across from California. Nice, gentle rains. Let's step aside over here. So those gentle rains come in from California in the form of a cold front. They rain on the Mojave Desert, which is to the west of us. They rain on us, and then they kind of peter out as they move their way across. Then in the summertime, as you mentioned, we get this, the monsoon storms, which is those big, heavy thunderstorms that move up from the Gulf of Mexico dump a bunch of rain on the Chihuahuan Desert and then they come over and they dump a bunch of rain on the Sonoran Desert and then they kind of peter out before they get to the Mojave. So the Mojave only gets one rainy season. The Chihuahuan only gets one rainy season. The Sonoran Desert gets two and it is that bimodal rainfall that is really important to saguaro cacti and why they only exist here. A little further north you get that bimodal rainfall but then you start getting into freezing temperatures and cactus don't like freezing temperatures. The saguaros don't like freezing temperatures. So it is that geographic nexus of the winter rains and the summer rains and the not getting too many freezing temperatures that make this the perfect place for the cactus to start growing. When, when I was talking about the toads and whatnot, can you kind of describe the change in the landscape and the, the, the change in life, where it's wildlife or vegetation during that season, what happens? through that first summer, second summer season, um, the saguaros will also tell you what's happening because they will bloom, but not until May. They like it hot, like nobody else is out in the scorching sun, but the saguaros decide it is time to put on a party by decorating with all of their flowers. And I think the reason why they do that is because they know they're the only game in town. 
right? I mean, they are the only moisture. They are the only nectar. Um, everything else is getting really dry. So if you are a, a dove or a bee or a bat and you are needing moisture, you are coming to those flowers. And that is how they are getting their pollinations because they are really the only opportunity for a lot of our flying critters to be able to get a drink of moisture. Okay, so we were walking back to the car and we started talking about creosote and you said the desert smells like rain, mm -hmm. that old adage. And you were telling me what you like to do with creosote to release those oils. Sure, so with junior rangers, because many of them don't understand what we mean until they can experience it themselves. And when it's not quite wet enough, you're not smelling that desert smells like rain. So what you can do is you can take your mask off and then grab a clump of leaves and kind of cup them in your hand. And then you're gonna breathe into it like this. And then smell. Oh my. Right? Just a little bit of humidity in the air around those leaves releases that oil, and that is what makes the desert it. smell like rain. I love it. So, well, thank you for you joining so me on welcome. this walk. I appreciate it, and hopefully, we can have many more to come. No, this is fun. This is, I definitely prefer moving. <laughs> that was Emma Gibson hiking with Saguaro National Park's Andy Fisher. Winter and spring in Tucson mean a bump in tourism, but the last two years with the pandemic has made that more difficult, according to Dan Gibson with Visit Tucson. You know, it's such an interesting space, and I, and I think it's it's been strange the whole time, right? Because there's always been people that have been willing to travel, you know, as long as that's been functionally legal or possible. There's always been a group of people who have been willing to travel. And there's always been a group of people that under no circumstances will travel at all, right? And and then there's that space in between of people and their various, you know, how, how comfortable they feel, how they're watching particulars of the numbers and all these things that are happening. The last month we have, uh, we've seen statistics for was November of 2021, uh, which is weird to say, but in that time period, hotel occupancy was almost up to where it was in, in November of 2019. The rate that people were paying for rooms had gone up, which is, sort of counterintuitive, but it is a general idea of the health of the hotel and travel industry because people are willing to pay a premium dollar to go somewhere. So, you know, you see this sort of like a little bit of um, fatigue of, of people who are just like, I, I need to go somewhere. Um, I've been vaccinated, I've been boosted, and they feel comfortable. Now, any given day, those things change because of the factors of these numbers. And then just what's available to them, you know, events, may or may not happen. The gem show seems strong and, and likely to happen, you know, not as big as it once was, but in a pretty significant and real way. But, you know, uh, Tucson Jazz Festival had three, two or three dates postponed. You know, it, it, it's just that challenge of the uncertainty is still a very real thing. I know I, like a lot of people here in Tucson, have spent a lot of time, especially over the last two years, out in Sabino Canyon and Saguaro National Park, just getting outside because outside is safer. I've heard a lot of different languages and different uh, U.S. accents. Are we seeing more from a tourism standpoint, people coming to use our great outdoor spaces? It's absolutely been the the main thing we've marketed, to be honest, is because we have you know wide open spaces. We have these places where you can do the social distancing thing with ease. Uh, I always tell people when I'm talking to them, I'm like, you have to realize that in Tucson, for being in a real city, you can be nowhere in a hurry, right? Like it's 15, 20, 30 minutes, you can 
see no, you know, no single person pretty quickly. And then you're seeing the momentum of that. And the New York Times this week, they announced there are 52 places to go in 2022. And Sorrow National Park is one of them. The people coming to our website via searches for national parks went way up during the pandemic and, and it's still gone up. So, you know, it's it's certainly something we focus on because it's an, it's an asset we have, especially now. It's not dissimilar to the way we market Tucson in January of any given year, right? It's, it's a place you can go outside and enjoy your life in some manner. But talking about biking and hiking and these things where you do have the access to be separate from people and, and have that extra addition of safety mitigation has been really great for us. I know. I think it was a week ago, a National Geographic travel article uh, out of the UK was making the rounds, at least on social media, talking about what a great city Tucson is to eat in. We seem to have a lot of restaurants that are outdoors or have outdoor seating large amounts. Are you guys getting questions about that also? Oh, for sure. Whether it's journalists coming here to visit or whether it's consumers, potential travelers, a lot of the questions that come into our, our helpline, to our social, all that stuff is like, well, there are places to eat outdoors, right? And, and thankfully, like, I think that's always been a big part of Tucson's culture in a way that, you know, we have the space to do it, right? But also that there's so many months here where it is really lovely outside that there are places to eat and drink and, and do a lot of those things. So we would we definitely still want to try to keep the momentum that we have about the city of gastronomy designation and, and food culture and that Nat Geo UK food thing was you know, a great asset in that sense. It's just still that waiting game of when more people, when you sort of fully feel that people will feel safe in, in different contexts. It seems like from the economic side that jobs in the tourism industry still may not have recovered from this. What will it take to get them back up to full steam? Yeah, that's a great question. It is a little bit of that navigation of just being able to have staffing, right? There are a couple of local restaurants this week that either took back their hours significantly because they just can't find enough people, or a couple of them closed temporarily just because they, they just can't make it work with the people they have. It's a really interesting space, and you see a lot of restaurants you know, struggling with those things of offering bonuses or higher pay and, and thinking about all that stuff. You know, maybe as you see more students coming back into the market in permanent ways, you know, I think employees are thinking about their safety as well and being cautious of what works for them and uh, um, and what feels safe and, and right. The the volume is, isn't so much the problem. It is just, it really is, we're going like na nationally, it's not unique to Tucson, but it has, is happening here where you're just seeing significant staffing issues. So it's, it's that give and take, right. Of, um, making sure there's enough money coming in to support those things, which is ramping back up, but also people feeling safe at their place of employment. You said Gem Show will be back, maybe not at its full Gem Showness uh, that we've seen in the past. But um, beyond that, looking into your crystal ball, what does 2022 look like at this point? Oh, gosh. Um, I think I've been wrong about everything for so long that it's so, so difficult to say. I think it's it's really this this matter of how long Omicron lasts and whether there is something in its wake. It's just so unknowable, but it, it does really feel that um, tourists have, by and large, made the decision that they're going to travel because they do feel as safe as they can make things. It is an essential part of like the human experience, right, to see different things and have different experiences. It's more of a hope than a prediction. It's just that we can sort of 
have some sort of normality back. The gem show being in, you know, a largely full bloom is, is a part of that, but we still are struggling with the fact that it's challenging or in some cases impossible to come here from some of the international destinations that are a big part of the gym show. I think you'll, you really will see the strength of domestic travel and, and Mexico and Canada coming here. But I think the thing we're waiting for are, um, in that case, our international travelers to be able to really experience Tucson as much as we'd like them to. And then the waiting game really for us, I think, is, is a lot of the groups and conventions you do still see a lot of uncertainty in those spaces because it's one thing for me to say, well, I want to go to a place. Um, I, I feel comfortable managing that for myself. It is another thing to say that to your employees, to um, a group of people in your professional group or whatever it is. That's still the challenge we're seeing is that that business is is still very much up and down. It's a real roller coaster of corporate emotion. So my fingers crossed that in the second half of uh, 2022, or even maybe hopefully a little sooner, you'll see see the conventions really roll in in full force. Yeah, I guess we really can't do conventions uh, outside. We uh, may, Maybe old Tucson studios, but uh, other than that, no. We certainly tried. Uh, I, you know, you try to make everything possible as much as you can. You know, in, in, in case some, some cases, a place like uh, GW Marriott Star Pass has a lot of outdoor space, and, and a lot of those conventions have looked at things like that, or uh, Tank of Verde Ranch. People are, are innovative and, and thinking about these things in smart ways, but you are still seeing rebookings and cancellations and still very active. That's the toughest part of this business, really. Sports has come back largely. Uh, leisure has come back in some ways largely. But that group and corporate travel is still the, the soft spot that hopefully 2022 will see a resolution to. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Pleasure. Anytime. That's Dan Gibson with Visit Tucson. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're talking about winter tourism and enjoying the great outdoors. A sport with growing popularity, it's now even in the Olympics, is rock climbing. Southern Arizona is considered a hot spot. To learn more, we spoke with Maggie Dawson, the president of the Climbing Association of Southern Arizona, or CASA. She started our conversation explaining what makes climbing here so good. Oh my gosh. It's hard. And I think people like that challenge. It's really difficult. Or it's a bit of a choose your own adventure, right? You could climb easy stuff all day. But it also has problem solving. It's not just doing a hard thing. It's like a puzzle and you have to solve it with your body. And I think that's really cool. And of course, we have great weather that even at this time of year, all right, maybe you can't go all the way up to the top of Mount Lemon to climb, but there's still lower elevation climbing that yeah, the rest of the country doesn't get to even enjoy that. Yeah, we can climb year round here. There's something every time of the year. I've climbed up at the summit in the summer and it was cold. We've been hailed on. We're like, oh, where did this come from? Um, so no matter what time of year in southern Arizona, you can find somewhere to get outside and climb on rocks. And that's definitely unique. So what are some of the popular areas? We both just were talking about Mount Lemon and the Catalinas, but there's got to be more climbing than that. Um, we have the Dragoons, Cochise Stronghold, which has great climbing, big climbs. There's definitely stuff you can get out on for the whole day, which is a little different than Mount Lemon, where it's 60, 70 foot climbs. We do have some bigger stuff up there. And then there's the farmhouse. There's some great limestone climbing south of here. I haven't tried it, but I hear... It's amazing. And, and of course, we're lucky enough to have a couple of indoor places, um, you know, for, for practice in the middle of the week. 
Yeah, all three gyms are great. Rock Solid just opened up during the pandemic up north. And then there's the block on the east side and Rocks and Ropes downtown, which is, I think, where most of us get started. I was going to say, so somebody wants to get started in this. They listen to our interview. They've they've seen the, all the videos and stuff like that. And says, That's it. I'm going to try this. How does somebody get into this? Go to the gym to start. That's where most people get their start. They'll give you a little bit of an introduction, how to climb, how to be safe while you're falling, uh, how to tie into your ropes, and uh, just keep showing up. I had a long period where I didn't have climbing partners, and I just kept going to the gym, put a big smile on my face, and people will talk to you. They'll climb with you, and eventually you get outside and learn the ropes. When it comes to CASA, CASA isn't just a climbing club. You guys do a lot of work on trails and things like that. Tell us a little bit about the organization. I would say most of our work is not as a climbing club. We don't really do like events at the gym typically. It's more about stewardship events, bolt replacement. Those are our two big programs. So stewardship involves adopt-a-crags where climbers can go out and clean up trash, work on erosion control, move boulders, learn a little bit about how a trail is built. Believe it or not, the steps are not just to make it easier to walk on. It actually prevents the water from eroding the trail. And then bolt replacement and anchor replacement is a huge program for us. And that's going out. Some of the bolts outside climbing are maybe 20, 30 years old. So they need replacing. And I'm sure everybody who climbs those really, really appreciates that. Um, And just in case people don't know who are listening to this, what is a bolt? I think an anchor is pretty obvious, but what's a bolt? A bolt, um, you drill a hole into the rock and then glue in a bolt. And then when you're climbing, you clip that uh, with a quick draw and clip your rope to that. So that's your protection. So it's really important that those are safe, that they're not old. If you climb five feet above your bolt and you take a fall, you're going to fall at least 10 feet. Now, you've said fall twice, and as I said before we started this, I've done some climbing, so I know what you mean, but other people may find that that term very scary. Uh, <laughs> it is. They're not wrong. No, they're not wrong. It, it can be scary, but climbing is is relatively safe. Uh, relatively. It's a, like I said, it's a choose your own adventure. So you can go out and be Alex Honnold. If that's your cup of tea, it's not mine. My mom might be listening. So it's definitely not mine, but you can, you can find climbs that are safer or as safe as you want them to be. I remember, uh, seeing signs and talking with climbers besides weather. You all have to keep certain things in mind, especially like up in the Mount Lemon area, There's, if I remember correctly, right around now, there's peregrine falcon nesting. So there are whole areas that you guys can't climb in right now. So you all also have to be environmental stewards at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really cool thing that happened in southern Arizona. There used to be a blanket closure on Mount Lemmon for rock climbing, where during nesting season, you just weren't allowed to climb. And when that lapsed, they let it lapse because... Falcons had been coming back in numbers, but also because climbers had been self-reporting. So if we're saying, as long as we as a group are saying like, hey, there's falcons on this rock, don't climb on this rock, then we can go climb on this other rock where there's not falcons. Whereas in the past, it was just like, nope, this is all closed. Is it a sport that's getting more popular? And during the pandemic, did it get more popular or less popular? 
climbing is exploding and now it's in the Olympics. So I think we're just going to keep seeing that grow. So knowing that environmental stewardship is so important to be able to educate future climbers and say like, hey, if we want to keep doing this awesome thing, we have to be responsible about our outdoor ethics. Do we have people coming in from other parts of the country around the world to climb southern Arizona? I mean, it, it seems like it would be a great idea to me. I don't think it's as big as some destinations where you're like right near the water or like Joshua Tree is a worldwide destination. Uh, and I don't think we're there, but we definitely see a lot of people from around the world coming here climbing and it's definitely growing in popularity. You mentioned a lot of people, yourself included me, when I was doing the little bit of climbing that I did. Everybody starts at the gym. What does it take to go from in the nice, safe confines of the gym to outdoors, be it Cochise Stronghold or or Mount Lemon or somewhere else? There's different ways to do it. I learned like a lot of people where I met some friends who took me outside. They taught me how to belay outdoors, which is a little different than what you would do at the gym. But I think in hindsight, the safest way would be to hire a guide and they can teach you or take a gym to crag class, they call it. So the crag would be like the outside climbing space. And they do they do offer that and they teach it. And it would be I think safer because you're learning with a professional who's definitely like knows how to teach you and not your friends who are just like, yeah, now we're ready. Let's let's go do it. Well, perfect. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. That was Maggie Dawson with the Climbing Association of Southern Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. If you want to keep up with all of Arizona's legislative news, check out our new podcast, Gavel to Gavel, the Arizona Legislature. It's hosted by Andrew Oxford and can be found all the places you find The Buzz. Megan Myskowski produced this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.